0: Part 2 Minorities versus Majorities From Anarchism and Other Essays This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Anarchism and Other Essays by Emma Goldman Minorities versus Majorities if I were to give a summary of the tendency of our times, I would say quantity. The multitude, the mass spirit, dominates everywhere, destroying quality. Our entire life, production, politics, and education rests on quantity, on numbers. THE WORKER WHO ONCE TOOK PRIDE IN THE THOROUGHNESS AND QUALITY OF HIS WORK HAS BEEN REPLACED BY BRAINLESS AND COMPETENT AUTOMATONS WHO TURN OUT ENORMOUS QUANTITIES OF THINGS, VALUELESS TO THEMSELVES AND GENERALLY INJURIOUS TO THE REST OF MANKIND. THUS QUANTITY, INSTEAD OF ADDING TO LIFE'S COMFORTS AND PEACE, HAS MERELY INCREASED MAN'S BURDEN. IN POLITICS, NOT BUT QUANTITY COUNTS. In proportion to its increase, however, principles, ideals, justice, and uprightness are completely swamped by the array of numbers. In the struggle for supremacy, the various political parties outdo each other in trickery, deceit, cunning, and shady machinations, confident that the one who succeeds is sure to be hailed by the majority as the victor. That is the only God. Success as to what expense what terrible cost to character is of no moment we have not far to go in search of proof to verify this sad fact never before did the corruption the complete rottenness of our government stand so thoroughly exposed Never before were the American people brought face to face with the Judas nature of that political body, which has claimed for years to be absolutely beyond reproach as the mainstay of our institutions, the true protector of the rights and liberties of the people. Yet when the crimes of that party became so brazen that even the blind could see them, it needed but to muster up its minions, and its supremacy was assured— Thus the very victims, duped, betrayed, outraged a hundred times, decided not against, but in favor of the victor. Bewildered, the few asked how could the majority betray the traditions of American liberty. Where was its judgment, its reasoning capacity? That is just it. The majority cannot reason. It has no judgment. Lacking utterly in originality and moral courage, the majority has always placed its destiny in the hands of others. Incapable of standing responsibilities, it has followed its leaders even unto destruction. Dr. Stockman was right. The most dangerous enemies of truth and justice in our midst are the compact majorities. The damned compact majority... Without ambition or initiative, the compact mass hates nothing so much as innovation. It has always opposed, condemned, and hounded the innovator, the pioneer of a new truth. The oft-repeated slogan of our time is, among all politicians, the socialists included, that ours is an era of individualism of the minority. Only those who do not probe beneath the surface might be led to entertain this view. Have not the few accumulated the wealth of the world? Are they not the masters, the absolute kings of the situation? Their success, however, is due not to individualism, but to the inertia, the cravenness, the utter submission of the mass. The latter once but to be dominated, to be led, to be coerced, As to individualism, at no time in human history did it have less chance of expression, less opportunity to assert itself in a normal, healthy manner the individual educator imbued with honesty of purpose the artist or writer of original ideas the independent scientist or explorer the non-compromising pioneers of social changes are daily pushed to the wall by men whose learning and creative ability have become decrepit with age Educators of Farrar's type are nowhere tolerated, while the dieticians of predigested food, a la Professors Eliot and Butler, are the successful perpetuators of an age of non-entities, of automatons. In the literary and dramatic world, the Humphrey Wards and Clyde Fitches are the idols of the mass, while but few know or appreciate the beauty and genius of an Emerson, Thoreau, whitman an ibsen a Hauptmann, a butler yeats or a stephen phillips they are like solitary stars far beyond the horizon of the multitude publishers theatrical managers and critics ask not for the quality inherent in creative art but will it meet with a good sale will it suit the palate of the people alas this palate is like dumping ground It relishes anything that needs no mental mastication. As a result, the mediocre, the ordinary, the commonplace represents the chief literary output. Need I say that in art we are confronted with the same sad facts? One has but to inspect our parks and thoroughfares to realize the hideousness and vulgarity of the art manufacture. Certainly none but a majority taste would tolerate such an outrage on art. False in conception and barbarous in execution, the statuary that infests American cities has as much relation to true art as a totem to a Michelangelo. Yet that is the only art that succeeds. The true artistic genius who will not cater to accepted notions who exercises originality and strives to be true to life, leads an obscure and wretched existence. His work may some day become the fad of the mob, but not until his heart's blood has been exhausted, not until the pathfinder has ceased to be, and a throng of an idealist and visionless mob has done to death the heritage of the master.' It is said that the artist of today cannot create because, Prometheus like, he is bound to the rock of economic necessity. This, however, is true of art in all ages. Michelangelo was dependent on his patron saint no less than the sculptor or painter of today, except that the art connoisseurs of those days were far away from the madding crowd. They felt honoured to be permitted to worship at the shrine of the master. The art protector of our time knows but one criterion, one value, the dollar. He is not concerned about the quality of any great work, but in the quantity of dollars his purchase implies. Thus the financier in Mirbeau's Les Affaires sont les Affaires points to some blurred arrangement in color, saying, See how great it is? It costs 50,000 francs. Just like our own parvenus, the fabulous figures paid for their great art discoveries must make up for the poverty of their taste. The most unpardonable sin in society is independence of thought. That this should be so terribly apparent in a country whose symbol is democracy is very significant of the tremendous power of the majority wendell phillips said fifty years ago in our country of absolute democratic equality public opinion is not only omnipotent it is omnipresent there is no refuge from its tyranny there is no hiding from its reach and the result is that if you take the old greek lantern and go about to seek among a hundred You will not find a single American who has not, or who does not fancy at least he has, something to gain or lose in his ambition, his social life or business, from the good opinion and the votes of those around him. And the consequence is that instead of being a mass of individuals, each one fearlessly blurting out his own conviction, as a nation compared to other nations, we are a mass of cowards. More than any other people, we are afraid of each other. Evidently, we have not advanced very far from the condition that confronted Wendell Phillips. Today, as then, public opinion is the omnipresent tyrant. Today, as then, the majority represents a mass of cowards willing to accept him who mirrors its own soul and mind poverty. That accounts for the unprecedented rise of a man like Roosevelt, he embodies the very worst element of mob psychology. A politician, he knows that the majority cares little for ideals or integrity. What it craves is display. It matters not whether that be a dog show, a prize fight, the lynching of a nigger, the rounding up of some petty offender, the marriage exposition of an heiress, or the acrobatic stunts of an ex-president the more hideous the mental contortions the greater the delight and bravos of the mass thus pour in ideals and vulgar of soul roosevelt continues to be the man of the hour on the other hand men towering high above such political pygmies, men of refinement of culture of ability are jeered into silence as mollycoddles It is absurd to claim that ours is the era of individualism. Ours is merely a more poignant repetition of the phenomenon of all history. Every effort for progress, for enlightenment, for science, for religious, political, and economic liberty emanates from the minority and not from the mass. Today as ever, the few are misunderstood, hounded, imprisoned, tortured, and killed. THE PRINCIPLE OF BROTHERHOOD EXPOUNDED BY THE AGITATOR OF NAZARETH PRESERVED THE GERM OF LIFE, OF TRUTH AND JUSTICE, SO LONG AS IT WAS THE BEACON LIGHT OF THE FEW. THE MOMENT THE MAJORITY SEIZED UPON IT, THAT GREAT PRINCIPLE BECAME A shibboleth AND HARBINGER OF BLOOD AND FIRE, SPREADING SUFFERING AND DISASTER. THE ATTACK ON THE OMNIPOTENCE OF ROME WAS LIKE A SUNRISE AMID THE DARKNESS OF THE NIGHT only so long as it was made by the colossus figures of a huss a calvin or a luther yet when the mass joined in the procession against the catholic monster it was no less cruel no less bloodthirsty than its enemy woe to the heretics to the minority who would not bow to its dicta after infinite zeal endurance and sacrifice the human mind is at last free from the religious phantom the minority has gone on in pursuit of new conquests, and the majority is lagging behind, handicapped by truth grown false with age. Politically, the human race would still be in the most absolute slavery were it not for the John Balls, the Watt Tylers, the Tells, the innumerable individual giants who fought inch by inch against the power of kings and tyrants. But for individual pioneers, the world would have never been shaken to its very roots by that tremendous wave, the French Revolution. Great events are usually preceded by apparently small things. Thus the eloquence and fire of Camille de Moulon was like a trumpet before Jericho, raising to the ground that emblem of torture, of abuse, of horror, the Bastille. Always, at every period, the few were the banner-bearers of a great idea, of liberating effort. Not so the mass, the leaden weight of which does not let it move. The truth of this is borne out in Russia with greater force than elsewhere. Thousands of lives have already been consumed by that bloody regime, yet the monster on the throne is not appeased. How is such a thing possible when ideas, culture, literature, when the deepest and finest emotions groan under the iron yoke? The majority, that compact, immobile, drowsy mass, the Russian peasant, after a century of struggle, of sacrifice, of untold misery, still believes that the rope which strangles the man with the white hands, i.e. the intellectuals, brings luck. In the American struggle for liberty, the majority was no less of a stumbling block. Until this very day the ideas of Jefferson, of Patrick Henry, of Thomas Paine, are denied and sold by their posterity. The Mass wants none of them. The greatness and courage worshipped in Lincoln have been forgotten in the men who created the background for the panorama of that time. The true patron saints of the black men were represented in that handful of fighters in Boston. Lloyd Garrison, Wendell Phillips, Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and Theodore Parker, whose great courage and sturdiness culminated in that somber giant John Brown. Their untiring zeal, their eloquence and perseverance, undermined the stronghold of the Southern Lords. Lincoln and his minions followed only when abolition had become a practical issue recognized as such by all. About fifty years ago, a meteor-like idea made its appearance on the social horizon of the world, an idea so far-reaching, so revolutionary, so all-embracing as to spread terror in the hearts of tyrants everywhere. On the other hand, that idea was a harbinger of joy, of cheer, of hope to the millions. The pioneers knew the difficulties in their way. They knew the opposition, the persecution, the hardships that would meet them. But proud and unafraid, they started on their march onward, ever onward. Now that idea has become a popular slogan. Almost everyone is a socialist today. The rich man as well as his poor victim. The upholders of law and authority as well as their unfortunate culprits the free-thinker as well as the perpetuator of religious falsehoods, the fashionable lady as well as the shirtwaist girl. Why not? Now that the truth of fifty years ago has become a lie, now that it has been clipped of all its youthful imagination and been robbed of its vigor, its strength, its revolutionary ideal? Why not? Now that it is no longer a beautiful vision but a practical workable scheme resting on the will of the majority, why not? With the same political cunning and shrewdness the mass is petted, pampered, cheated daily. Its praise is being sung in many keys. The poor majority, the outraged, the abused, the giant majority, if only it would follow us. Who has not heard this litany before? Who does not know this never-varying refrain of all politicians? That the mass bleeds, that it is being robbed and exploited, I know as well as our vote-baiters. But I insist that not the handful of parasites, but the mass itself is responsible for this horrible state of affairs. It clings to its masters, loves the whip and is the first to cry crucify the moment a protesting voice is raised against the sacredness of capitalistic authority or any other decayed institution yet how long would authority and private property exist if not for the willingness of the mass to become soldiers policemen jailers and hangmen The socialist demagogues know that as well as I, but they maintain the myth of the virtues of the majority because their very scheme of life means the perpetuation of power. And how could the latter be acquired without numbers? Yes, power, authority, coercion, and dependence rest on the mass. But never freedom, never the free unfoldment of the individual, never the birth of a free society not because i do not feel with the oppressed the disinherited of the earth not because i do not know the shame the horror the indignity of the lives the people lead do i repudiate the majority as a creative force for good oh no no but because i know so well that as a compact mass it has never stood for justice or equality it has suppressed the human voice subdued the human spirit chained the human body. As a mass, its aim has always been to make life uniform, gray, and monotonous as the desert. As a mass, it will always be the annihilator of individuality, a free initiative of originality. I therefore believe with Emerson that the masses are crude, lame, pernicious in their demands and influence, and need not to be flattered but to be schooled, I wish not to concede anything to them, but to drill, divide, and break them up, and draw individuals out of them. Masses! The calamity are the masses! I do not wish any mass at all, but honest men only, lovely, sweet, accomplished women only. In other words, the living vital truth of social and economic well-being will become a reality only through the zeal, courage, the non-compromising determination of intelligent minorities, and not through the mass. End of Part 2